This episode contains graphic descriptions that some listeners may find disturbing or triggering. Please listen with discretion. Just be left alone For to lick my wounds And nurse my bruise To get old quickly And remain unknown But to sing The blues On the last episode of Someone Else's Blues, Sam and Paul recounted the significance of Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain for each of them. But actually, so one other thing I wanted to ask you is like, um, again, I still don't know what I want to do here, but are you comfortable with me kind of reading, reading like the description of like what, what actually happens? Like, when Bill got hit? Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess. I mean, yeah, like, the reason I wrote that down is because, like, I wanted to have a place for it. Um, Right. And, I don't know, I think writing that down made me feel like I found a place for it or something. Um, right. So, so yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just, I mean, honestly, I just feel like, I mean, yeah, I, I understand that there's a place for it, but I also feel like people, I, I feel like people should read that. And I feel like, I mean, I know you've published part of, you published like the essay that you wrote at the beginning, right? Isn't that what that, um, I, th- I feel like you wrote this long introduction to the, the journal and you kind of published the introduction, but the journal itself, and I know you said, like, you, you feel like it's still, like, an incomplete document, but, um, yeah, I don't know. Well, I, yeah. I think part of, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, yeah, there are days, like, I tried to, you know, I had every day kind of, like, listed, like, um, that had like a place I woke up and a place I went to sleep and they were all different places. Um, but towards, towards the end of our trip, like, I think like when Bill died, I had it written in my journal for like a whole week. Um, Mm -hmm. and then I felt like way too overwhelmed to even like attempt to do that with, you know, starting to like grieve the loss of him. So, it was something that, like, you know, as time went on and I felt more able to work on it. But I think there are entire days of that trip that, like, I've, like, closer towards the end of it that I, like, have no 
ability to, like, recall. I mean, I could, looking at a map, I guess, I can sort of, like, vaguely recall details about things that happened, like, when we got into Arkansas, but a lot of it, it's all mixed up and it's all very blurry. Um, Right. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, that's why I feel like it's incomplete. But I also feel like it's it got to a place in the course of working on it where I felt like, you know, I've I've written enough of this down. And I yeah, like I mean... Kind of move on. Yeah, I mean, again, it's been years since I've actually looked at it, but what I remember is I, it felt very complete to me, and it felt like, like as you kind of approach that last day that... Um, like the the narrative kind of goes it's not just like here's what happened it's like here's who bill was here's what my relationship with bill was like like you guys like i was just flipping through it and like there's a moment you kind of remember like a, a time when you were driving home and like you you and bill were coming back from the library late one night for at bard and like you hit a deer mm-hmm. and then bill like you like you remember Bill being like really kind of shook, shaken up about that. Um, yeah, and so like, so like, yeah, there are all these like memories. Like, I, I, yeah, I mean, for me, that that's what I think is powerful about that that document is that it's like it's not just a document of this bike trip. It's kind of a a document of like who Bill was and like what he what he was to you and what he was to his community. If I were not me And you were not you And we did not both know what we've both been through My name is Will Steffen. Welcome to Someone Else's Blues, a podcast about twins, twinship, and the best singer-songwriter you've never heard of. Part 7. Much Too Brave. Monday, 16 May, 2011. Tumbling Shoals, Arkansas to Searcy, Arkansas. The Water. This friend, he had a crash, he died on the Life will have to start over today. At the divergence of what happens with what might have, the divorce between what occurred and what before it had could not have possibly.
It will be months before you will find yourself no longer thinking of him. And even then, you will wonder if you were actually not thinking of him, or if by that point you had only immersed your gaze so irrevocably in his that you could no longer tell where his ended and yours began. But even if he could come back, what would even he be able to tell me that would console me? I am fine, Sam. Really. Fine. Finer than I ever was. I didn't even know what happened. I didn't feel a thing. It was like reading a book and having someone come along to tear out the page you were working on, right in the middle of a sentence. It was annoying, yeah, a little distracting, but from what? It brings you back. You return to the place and the kind of being from which life earns for itself all its beauty, infinity, and value. One moment you are reading, then you look up, look to see the hand that tore out your page, And the moment you do that, you find that you are in a different place, and suddenly you do not remember any of it. You do not remember why you looked up, or even that you looked up from anything. You do not recognize any of your surroundings. You do not even have surroundings. You do not even see things in the sensory way we are used to talking about it. You are not even you anymore, in the sense of having a body and a sense of time with which to age it. You do not remember what you were doing a moment ago, reading the book of your life, nor any of the characters in it, nor what page you were on. And it is fine. It is, really. It did not even hurt. You don't even feel it. And the best part of it is that you do not miss it, do not know how to miss it, nor remember any of the people who were there with you in it, because you were never doing it. What you become when you are dead is not really you in any recognizable sense. The handful of water from which you have drawn in your life is poured back into the ocean from which life is incessantly being drawn. And all the parts of you become scattered. They go and recombine themselves into the massiveness of everything. You have no basis for comparison anymore. You simply go back. Not to life and not to death just back to where you were before you were anything, before anything was. Don't think of it as a place. It's not anywhere. It's not in time. It's not into your mother and father, not into the children you did not have, but into what there was before. You have to realize that what you are in life is the end result of a history that has had no beginning. When you die, Sam, Everything you know about the world and yourself dies with you. There is no world anymore. The whole world ends every time an individual dies. And that is not bad. Remember, there is no good and bad. There are only stories. You don't even want to go back. You don't want anything. Because you don't remember anything when you're dead. That's not how it works. But you, Sam... You do. You remember it. And the whole goddamn bunch of you who knew me, who I loved, you all knew it in your own ways. So you remember it. I did all I could, because that is what you ought to do when you are living. You ought to try to help each other realize that you're all here to try to keep from hurting one another, even while knowing full well that you can't draw in your breath without it taking away something from someone else. That's just how it works. That's the whole reason your heart can break so bad. Because it knows how to love. 
And that's actually the only reason it can love, too, because it can break. But the heart takes its own brokenness into account. That's why it can go on beating when it can't possibly. That's how it can stop beating when it can't possibly. Because it's just a thing to measure time with. And you can keep my time for me as well as I could, because we were close and our hearts beat together for a while, and yours is still beating, and that means mine is too. The rhythms could not stray from yours even if you wanted them to. Because I'm not even saying all of this to you anyway. You're saying it. And I'm just agreeing with all of it, because you are. In the beginning, all was darkness. There was a black wind on the waves. God said, someone turn a light on, please. In the light, he called the day. He called the night time And then he counted to one When the first date was finished He said it was easier said than done It's easier said than done Starting off with less than none Working up towards having some Getting past where you're coming from It's simpler lost than won Likelier left than brung It's oftener spoke than sung And it's easier said than done Bill's call to the cattle Hiyah, hiyah, on your feet! which was miraculous in Arizona the day we rode onto the reservation. Bill Thompson telling me, we could have you back here in two hours' time, not realizing then that Bill Cranshaw had at that time only a little more than two hours yet to live, not knowing that that would get me back just in time to see him one more time, to let him ask me how the ride was, and not to say more than a word about it. The ride in the car with Bill Thompson is the first thing that happens to me that Bill never gets to hear about. At the roadside, the materialization of people, the willow tree, how fragile we are, wondering where his helmet was, his face, his arms, his legs, his shoes off, his throat cut, his teeth bleeding. I pulled open his eyelids and his eyes did not see me being asked if I would like to pray, shaking the woman's hand free of me, the police officer who apprehended me physically and told me I needed to calm down, the words, he was my friend, being the only thing I could say to try to make people understand, the bomb, the proceedings in the hospital, Paul having to call someone else before he could get Sue's phone number, then having to call Sue, who was in New York City at the time, Hannah saying it is going to be okay. How did it happen? I don't know. Where do you want me to begin? He was my friend. I, I first met Bill. No, today. Today? The accident. I need you to tell me exactly how it happened. I need you just to say what you saw. I didn't see much. I mean, just take a minute. I know. I was just pulling back out onto the road and I heard this sound like a bomb going off and I raised my head, wait, pulling out from where? From the driveway. Where? 
where we were. I don't know where it was. On Route 16, just outside of wherever it is we are now. Searcy. What? You're in Searcy, Arkansas. Now, what driveway? Here, write it. I don't know. There was a driveway we were in. We were there taking a break, and we were just pulling back out onto the road, and Paul went out first, or maybe it was Hannah. I I can't remember. One of them went. You can't remember? Wait, stop. Don't write that. Just tell me first what you're going to write before you write it. You need to be pretty precise with these statements, because they're going to be used probably when this thing comes to trial. So you want to use as few words as possible so you can fit it all in there. You don't have all the room in the world, as you can see, and you don't want to fill it up with things that just aren't important. So just say it to me first. Paul and Hannah went out first, and I was looking at Bill. And? We were waiting. While they left? Yeah, but we were going too, right behind them, and he was holding the map. And? Then what? No, don't write anything yet. And then he gave it back to me. And what time was this? I don't know, afternoon? I think around one or two, maybe? It was right before we were supposed to eat lunch. But you don't know what time? No. Okay, so they went, Paul and the other one, Hannah. And then you both went? Then Bill went. He was in front of you. Yeah, I was putting the map away. Bill had it because he wanted to see how far the next town was, and he looked at it. And then he gave it back to me, and I was tucking it back into my front bag, and he must have been gone by then. You mean gone. Got back onto the road, I mean. While I was still stopped in the driveway. And then I must have put it away, and then I must have looked both ways before I pulled back out onto the road, because I pulled out onto the road too then, and then... Don't write must've. What? Don't write must've. Either you did or you didn't. Did you look? Do you remember looking? I can't remember. You can't remember. No. Maybe I did. I probably did. But I was on the road when it happened. Okay, wait. So... So is that when it happened? No. I mean, yeah. So I pulled out onto the road and I was riding in the shoulder and must have looked up at him riding ahead of me. But you don't remember. No, I don't remember. And, and was he in the shoulder? Yeah, I, I think. I, I mean, I wasn't looking. It's important. I don't know if he was in the shoulder or not. I don't know why he wouldn't have been, though. And that's when it happened? No. I mean, that's when we were going again. And we were only on the road a couple of seconds before I heard a noise that was like a bomb going off. And I mean, it was loud. And I remember I am looking down when I hear it because when I raise my head there is already a car stopped in the road and smoke going everywhere like someone started a car fire. I do not remember the color of the car. I just know it was a car. My memory has preserved the colorless shape of a car. And then I thought a car must have hit a telephone pole because that was more what it sounded like. And that was actually what it looked like too because I looked up and there was a car in front of me with smoke coming up from it. And there was a dust cloud that was rising up, and everything looked sort of frozen. And I remember I thought that, I was thinking that, sort of saying that to myself, gee, a car must have hit a telephone pole. And when I could see him spinning through the air, and it's the second I lift up my head, there's all this smoke, and there's this yellow and red jersey spinning through the air, doing somersaults high, high up, and spinning very fast, 
like it was something somebody shot out of a cannon. Spinning and spinning, going around faster than you could even make out any of the features except the yellow and the red of his jersey. And even then, that's all that I could think that it was. Just a jersey spinning really fast with the heavy weight of a body within it to keep it going and going much faster than a body could possibly go. And I was still thinking that about the telephone pole, even though I'd already seen it by then, and would see it soon enough, that there weren't any telephone poles that close to the road that a car could have hit. And even after I'd already seen it was him, I couldn't know it yet because I was still thinking about how if it wasn't a telephone pole, then it must have been two cars that slammed into each other going head on. But I wasn't looking at the cars. They were all stopped anyway. And I wasn't too far behind all of this, and I just kept pedaling because that's what I had been doing anyways the moment I heard it. And so I got up to it, and now I can't breathe anymore. I can't really cry either, but I can't breathe at all anymore. And it's like everything's underwater all of a sudden, and I'm not able to move fast enough to do what I have to do because I'm underwater. And it's very hard to know that you have to move very fast to do something, but you have to hold your breath at the same time and move underwater to do it. Because the only thing I know that I have to do is call an ambulance, because I can see his jersey just lying there in the grass with his body still in it, just resting kind of peacefully, but every part of it is wrong because he hasn't got either one of his shoes on, or his glasses, or his watch, or his helmet, and he's just sort of curled up on his back, like he might have scooted himself there very awkwardly. But it doesn't really look like Bill at all, and part of me knows already that it isn't even him, and that he doesn't look like he's alive. And then I can remember the way he was flipping through the air, and how high up he was, and how fast, but I still couldn't know it was him. And I could see he was bleeding pretty bad, and he had a cut on his neck and his arms both looked broken, and his hands looked limp. And I'm getting my phone out even before I can go to him, and my hands are shaking, and I can't breathe, and I'm holding my hands over my ears for some reason because it's like that sound is still coming into them, or is finally getting there, even though it's gone quiet now except for me, who am making a noise I can't even control the pitch of or the squeal of. And everything is happening much too slowly for it to be right. I can't get the phone to turn on, and there's all these cars that have stopped, and people are getting out, but nobody's going to bill, and I can't even tell them to do something because everything's underwater, and I can't breathe, and there's something that's trying to get into my head, and I have to keep my hand over my ear, at least one of them, because my heart is trying to die in me, is doing those flips he was doing. And finally, somebody picks up, and I'm already just screaming about how we need an ambulance because my friend just got hit by a car, and I think he's dead. And the man on the line just keeps saying, Ma'am, ma'am, I'm going to need you to calm down. Now can you tell me what happened? Where are you, ma'am? And I can't even remember what I told them or what they said, but I remember knowing that nothing was happening like it should have been happening because I couldn't find any words for anything and they didn't seem to be listening to me anyway. And I had a vague sense that other people might have been calling an ambulance, and I think I went over to the road, where all of these cars had stopped, and shouted, Does anybody have a cell phone, for Christ's sake, or know where we are? Can you please call an ambulance? Someone? My friend is hurt. It was such a long time. And it wasn't until then that I went back to him. And it felt like it had been too long. And Paul and Hannah were there then. 
I remember them turning around very suddenly, and Paul coming to see, and then Hannah. And they screamed when they saw him. And they were both crying and hugging each other, and I don't know what happened while I was trying to make the phone call from the bottom of the sea. And then I went to him. This was after, or maybe it was before I said anything to anybody who was there on the roadside. And I stood over him, and at some point I realized that there was a lot of other people standing around, and there was nobody talking at all, and there was a police officer and a man who stood outside of the little ditch where Bill was lying, who said, he's dead, just in the way someone might have said it if they had been looking at an animal. And there was a kind of pathetic-looking willow tree there, too, with some of its branches sawed off and some of its branches hanging long and low and he was just lying under it, sort of curled up. And it was like the tree had been witness. And I don't know when it happened, but I think it was the man who had said he was dead, who had taken Bill's coat, which was just lying on the roadside now, and brought it over to him and just threw it over top of him, while all these people started getting out of their cars, and traffic stopped, and nobody was even honking, and nobody tried to remove it. And I remember feeling angry that that man had done that. But I didn't see him do it, so I don't know. But I remember looking at Bill and making the phone call and then going back to him and seeing the coat over him like a death shawl and nobody moving. And at some point we all went to him, Paul and Hannah and I, and we pulled the coat off and I remember looking at all of those people we didn't know, at all of these strangers and asking them, does anybody know CPR? Can someone please help us? And I remember nobody made even a sound. And there was one woman who wanted to pray. And somebody was saying, I'm so sorry. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. And I got down and Paul got down and Hannah got down and Paul held the back of Bill's head. And we looked at him closely, our friend, and we called his name at him, all of us, in turn. Just like he was right there. And just like he would wake up if we called him hard enough. And we just waited for someone to tell us what to do. But nobody said anything except one woman who came forward and asked us if we'd like to say a prayer. And we told her no. And that made me angry too, that she would have asked us that. Whether we wanted to pray when it was obvious that what we needed was immediate human action. Obvious that all of what could be tried had not been done yet, by any means. That, in fact, nobody who was there had actually done anything except given up hope and offered that we do the same in suggesting that we pray over him. No. No does not even quite convey the severity with which I felt myself refuse this request. But it was all I could manage at the time. None of this is right. Because even now it is taking too long to say it. It didn't happen as long or as slow as it takes for language to say how it was. It all happened very fast, and at the same time it seemed to be taking forever, because the noise of that bomb going off was still coming into me, and I could still see him spinning and then we were all around him, and I touched his hand and straightened his arms, and even though it had probably been five minutes since he had had any air, I opened his mouth and saw blood on his teeth, and we pulled up his eyelids and we were calling his name, just like he was pretending and would wake up any second. And I pinched his nose and put my mouth on his mouth and just breathed into him the breath I didn't have anyway. And I gave him two breaths and I put my ear to his mouth and listened and then I pressed on his chest and I remember asking Paul who was yelling Bill's name in a kind of exhausted way. 
How many compressions is it? 14? And I remember how it didn't sound right to be saying anything, especially that. I wanted Paul to do it because for some reason I wanted so badly to believe right then that he had been a lifeguard at some point in his past, even though part of me knew that he hadn't, and part of me wanted to believe that he had done this before at some point when he had been a swimmer. And I believed that right then, but I couldn't ask him. And then I did it again. I gave him 14 compressions, but I didn't feel like I was doing it right, and I wanted someone to come and take over for me and to do it with more sureness. And nobody said anything except Paul and Hannah, who were calling to him. And then two more big breaths. And when I gave him the compressions, I could see the air coming out of his mouth. And I realized that that's all breathing really is, isn't it? It's just air going in and out of you, and you don't even need to be alive to do it. And as I was leaning into him, come on, Bill, goddammit, don't die. I think I realized that's all that a heart is, too. Just a thing that beats on you from the inside like I'm doing now on the outside to keep your blood moving and your lungs going and to hold back the tears sometimes. And maybe you don't even need to be alive to have one. And it occurred to me later that maybe there are a great many of us who are already dead in this world and don't know it because we have heartbeats and medical definitions for life by which we may know. And there was a hole in his neck where blood was coming out and there was blood on his mouth, and there must have been blood on my mouth too because I could taste it. And I can still taste it sometimes, a little like copper, like a penny. And sometimes I will put a penny in my mouth, even though they say they are very dirty and that you shouldn't do that. And it will remind me of him and that day in a way that my memory won't let me remember on its own. But we did that a few times and kept waiting for Bill to take it back over. And somebody from the crowd, when I started sobbing again, and when it seemed like nothing was working and felt that we should stop, somebody said, No, once you start that, you can't stop it. You're his breath now. And he was mine too. And so we did that until the ambulance came, with Paul holding his head and Hannah calling him and me breathing into him and punching his chest with my one hand over the other in a fist, leaning into his chest with my arms just to see the wind come back out and the blood frothing in little bubbles around his mouth and not even checking for a pulse because there hadn't been one before and so why should there be one now? And when the ambulance got there, we asked them what to do and nobody said anything to us and I hated them all so much for that and the only things that we had been offered so far were prayers and silence, which are the most useless things when death is making away with his spoils and they wouldn't put their mouths on him, these medical professionals, and they wouldn't look at us either, as though we had all been hit ourselves. But they brought out a stretcher at least, and they took out all of this plastic, and they took so long to put on their rubber gloves so they didn't get any blood on themselves. And finally they got down in the grass, and they set him carefully onto this stretcher with two of them carrying it, and the nurse standing beside him squeezed this little plastic box with a plastic muzzle they put over his nose and mouth so that they wouldn't have to get his blood on them. And she squeezed it with one hand like it was a water bottle. And then she gave him a little one-armed compression after each squeeze. And I wanted to tell her that she was doing it wrong. That it was no good what she was doing. She might as well open his mouth and whistle into it if she was going to do that. But what did I know after all? And what do any of us know really about what to do, 
accept what we can with what we have and are able. And now it seemed like there were even more people standing around, even though it was impossible to know where they had all come from or for what purpose. And I remember a man with a big white beard said that he would take us to the hospital and that he had a wife and that she had said earlier that she had called an ambulance. And I don't know how I knew it, whether I remembered it later or if it became clear to me then, but she smoked a lot of cigarettes. Maybe that was something she told us in the car, or maybe it was something she did. But not yet, because I remember following the medics up the little ditch when they picked up his body on the stretcher and were putting it into the ambulance, and I asked the woman in the white medical garb, who had said nothing to me when I asked her to help me, if I could please ride in the ambulance. And she said nothing to me. So I said nothing too and just followed her up onto the road, and then when we had got up close to the ambulance, which was parked on the road facing the wrong way, the way it had arrived, not the way it would go, and everyone was standing around it, I asked her again if I could ride in the ambulance, and she said, Look, your friend is in critical condition. We need to work on him. It'd be better if you weren't in there, just so we can have more room. We're taking him to the hospital in town. You can meet us there. But it was like she was trying not to cry, and it didn't sound human for her to say a thing like that to me, when all I wanted to do was ride in the ambulance with him. And I think that's when I knew he was dead. Or was one of the times I knew it, anyway. Even though I had heard the noise and had seen him flipping through the air, and had seen the way he looked on the ground so still and lifeless, and someone had already said it the way they might have said it over an animal, and someone else had asked us if we wanted to pray, and Paul and Hannah had been crying together like they knew it too, and I had even said it was possible myself on the phone to the dispatch officer, and someone had put a coat over him to try to say it to everyone who was there. I had maybe even known it in one of these instances, but I think that every single thing that I did when his body was still there to look at and to touch and to hold onto was done in an effort to let myself forget it, the way I would deliberately let myself forget it immediately after this moment had passed too, and we rode to the hospital just so we could be told it again. I let myself forget that that was something that could happen. And if there must be a reason that I did, say it was because that one is only able to do that at first. Because you cannot simply learn that your best friend is dead by anything you have seen or experienced, any more than you can believe that he has died by anything you have been told. And by having to say to his mother over the phone that her son was killed today in an accident, you cannot learn it yourself any better than you can by having to say to your own father over the phone that you yourself were not. And I can remember Hannah asking them if he was still alive, and not hearing the response, but hearing Hannah say, it's going to be okay. They have him now. We don't know anything. We can't say anything for sure. It's going to be okay. And then sobbing. And I can remember telling myself right as the first medic climbed onto the ambulance's rear bumper, holding the end of the stretcher upon which Bill's feet were laid flat, when the man behind him had raised his end, and he was carried in flat upon the white board with his arms at his sides and his face obscured by the breathing apparatus, and his yellow and red jersey untucked from his black shorts over his strong cyclist's legs. Do not forget this, Sam. No matter what fogs of time and lapses of memory befall you between now and whenever you are able to put words to it, no matter what incoherence of age or reflection shall wear down upon your ability to recall, 
no matter what obligation of day or patience of time or strength of heart or humility of life it takes you to remember, you shall not forget this, how he looks now, how he looks now, or how he looked always before, big smiled and tall, asleep in libraries or with food in his hands, the dandruff in his hair and his unibrow, the physical body of your friend, Bill Ballou Cranshaw, just as he was, at 23 years, the greatest of companions and the kindest of men. You shall not forget him. The way you have so far neglected forget of the names of places and people and trees of this country from the ocean to here, and their stories. It is all you can do to promise so much, right before they shut him away. And then began all the things that happened without Bill. The first of which was becoming suddenly very conscious of the fact that I was standing very close to a police officer's belly. The instant the doors to the ambulance were shut and the sirens came on, a woman put her hands on me again and said, Did you want to say a prayer, son? And the sound was still coming into my ears and wouldn't stop. And there was his blood in my mouth, and at her touch I recoiled so violently and said no with such anger that the officer whose belly I might have hit slightly in my reaction seized me too hard and told me to just calm down. And how strange that in the presence of a dead body, everyone will bear witness, but no one will speak. But as soon as it is gone, they will touch you to see how you are. And when they find that you are wild, they will hold you still until you are limp. And I sobbed in his clutch from behind and apologized because I did not want to get arrested, though I realized it would not have mattered if I had been. I suppose there must be things for which violent displays even an officer of the law can have no qualms. And then we were gathering our things from the roadside, and I can't remember if there were traffic cops already out to direct traffic, or if it had simply stopped altogether. One had to assume that with the amount of people standing there, someone else would be paying attention to details. The officer was telling us that he was going to need all of us to fill out reports about what happened, but we did not want to talk to him, and there was a man with a white beard who said he would be glad to take us to the hospital to follow the ambulance, and so we threw our bikes quickly into the back of his truck, but not Bill's. The officer told us to leave that where it was, broken, mangled beyond repair as it was, as it was going to be evidence now. So we left it. And I had the fleetful thought that this was something I would tell Bill about, after we made it to the hospital and were informed that he would be okay, after maybe a week or two had passed in which he would no doubt lie unconscious and comatose, but not dead. He could not be dead. I would say to him, Jesus Christ, Bill, you should have seen your bike. It was a wreck. It looked like it had been chewed up and spit back out by I don't know what. And I imagined him smiling at that, perhaps still too weak to speak, maybe with strength enough only to breathe, but to smile at least with that big smile that he had. And I told myself, you will tell him. But Paul had one of the caps from Bill's water bottle, which had been ripped from its bottle in the collision and was holding one of his shoes, which he had found in the grass, and looked perplexed holding on to these items, like he knew they were evidence, but could not let go of them somehow, and was still holding them when we got into the truck. 
And even though we left his bike and were piling again into a stranger's car with all of our gear, as we had done so many times before, there was a small feeling of hope that was already gathering again within us, that maybe by the time we got to the hospital, he would be already hooked up to a machine and he would be fine. Because how many times had our fortune changed already on this trip so far? The events of today alone had so far been a testament to the outrageous nature of fortune. We had awakened and started off again, and my wheel had exploded, and it seemed the trip would be over. But we had been helped. I had been taken to Little Rock and brought back, and all so that we could keep going. And for a hundred yards, we had kept going. For 5,000 years, we have kept going. But we were stopped again now. It was hard to think that the Wheel of Fortune, which we had pinned between a front fork and ridden for 2,300 miles so far, would not turn over just once more and put us out back on top, with Bill injured, but fine, the trip done, and a few close calls to speak of. We climbed into the back of the truck, and the truck pulled away, and already it was better. As though simply because we were moving, it meant that things could still happen. Because it was staying still that was hard. We had not had to stay still anywhere in 45 days, not really. We had stopped, certainly. We had caught rest and even relaxed a little from time to time, but we were never still like we had just been, never so unable to move from one place. This is the furthest I have ever been from home. Yeah, I mean, a weird, almost conundrum that I think all of, all three, uh, Sam, Anna, and I all encountered after the bike trip was this sort of almost inability or maybe more, more a discomfort with, with talking about the trip because, or it almost, it was like a discomfort with acknowledging that like the trip was so good. Like, and yeah. I think like you said, there was, there was like some sad parts of the trip. And, like, yeah, obviously the trip just ended in like the worst right. way that, it, that a, a trip can end. Like the worst thing that could have happened, happened. And obviously that eclipsed the experience in a lot of ways, but I think it maybe at, at different times for all of us, and and even I do remember like right after, yeah, I guess actually like even right after the trip, I do think that it felt cathartic for us to like to talk about how great the trip was, and and I think that probably for a lot of like Bill's friends and family like it was it was also really nice to to know that like 
Bill died in like the context of what I think was probably like I think I can say that it was probably like one of the best experiences of his life. Yeah. Um, and and for all of us that was true. Last time you left, you told them goodbye. You told them you'd write a call, or at least try. And they said, all right, they said, all our love. And when you get back, we'll pick up right where we left off. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, being on the bike trip, it, it was, Bill, I think it was something that Bill really, he was fully living in those, those months, I feel like, and, uh, it was something that was really special and a, a, you know, life-changing experience to have been able to spend that time with him. Yeah. I wish I didn't have to, like, feel like it was at a sacrifice to the rest of his life. But, again, like, his humor and, like, his way, just, he was fully himself, and it, it's, it is good to remember and to think about it and to talk about it, and so I really appreciate that you have given us an opportunity to do that so specifically so so thank yeah. you <laughs> will you remember my name the way I'll keep yours inside of my heart and soul and my kitchen drawers or some other place somewhere it won't get lost so we can pick up right where we left off. I uh, like, I remember I was the, um, I remember talking with Liza, um, our, you know, you know, Liza and all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our close, our close friend who was not on the trip, but who, um, had gone on a big bike trip uh, with our friend Annika the year before. Um, and I remember, so Liza was living in Tivoli um, and spending a lot of time with the person I was long, long distance dating while we were on the trip, uh, Lila. Uh -huh. and, and I remember them saying that it, like, it almost just seemed like every time they heard from any of us, it was like always about Bill, and like I don't know if, and I and I don't think that I'm like that any of us were like making that up, you know. Like after you no, yeah. lose somebody, you like fixate on them, so it's easy to yeah. just naturally see things through them. But um, mm -hmm. but it was like he was having an experience that I think. Sam and Hannah and I and then like by proxy like Leora and Liza and you know Molly and Monica like all of our friends that were not there were but who were communicating with us we were just like witnessing um, Bill have 
this very profound experience. And I don't think it, like, I think in some ways that was, he was exuberant in a way that was, you know, not limited to the bike trip at all. But, but he was just, um, I don't know. It just seemed like he was processing, like, his life in, in like a really profound and, and I think liberating way. Like he, yeah. he seemed like he was being like freed from a lot of the sort of anxieties and concerns and worries that he was so used to carrying around. Um, and I, and I think that it was really cool for us to just like kind of hear him process that if we could go back maybe go on ahead if i could remember some of those lovely things we said maybe that'd be all right maybe that'd be enough maybe then we could pick up right where There's a storm coming, it's on the Times front page With a black and white photo of some kind of tidal wave On account of how everybody's gonna hit and behave Street preachers all wound up screaming that none will be saved Someone Else's Blues is a podcast written, produced, and edited by Will Steffen Music, of course, by Sam Steffen. By the way, if you like the music you have been hearing on this podcast, you can hear more at samsteffen.bandcamp.com. That's S-A-M-S-T-E-F-F-E-N dot B-A-N-D-C-A-M-P dot com. samsteffen.bandcamp.com. You better get your name cleared, Bluebeard, for they make you walk the plank. Call in your watchdogs, General, for they all pull Get your children, mama, bow your head and give thanks. Grow your hair long, Samson, you're gonna need your strength. You're between a rock and a high.